Thank, thank you very much. No longer at Mount Sinai. I moved north to the Bronx. I'm at Montefiore Einstein. Uh, one word in there that I don't think anybody ever expected to be associated with my name. Uh, Einstein, of course. Uh, so we have, uh, you know, we, we have a situation here, left-sided ulcerative colitis patient with two centimeter visible lesion that has low-grade dysplasia on surveillance. Now, there's a lot that's not in this title, uh, and we'll, we'll work through that uh, a whole bunch as, uh, as I go through this presentation here. Uh, we'll play by fair rules, Phil. Uh, this is uh, my, uh, you know, the, uh, my surgical colleague who's going to talk about this as well. Um, and uh, this, is, uh, this is pulled directly from the web. Uh, but I found an older picture uh, of Phil when he used to perform on Saturday Night Live as the grumpy old man. Uh, and we're going to hope that he doesn't revert back to the grumpy old man here. Uh, a lot has advanced in endoscopic therapy. Uh, since some of the publications that I suspect Phil and I know I will be reviewing, uh, and we do a much better job now in, in defining what is in front of us, what a polyp truly looks like, uh, and how to define it. Dana Carvey, really not Phil, just so you know. Uh, the purpose of surveillance is really to interrupt this inflammation, to dysplasia, to cancer, to death sequence. Uh, we have the opportunity to intervene after dysplasia has occurred, uh, either with a polypectomy uh, or with surgery, and that's really what we're, uh, what we're talking about here in this patient. Uh, great work done by David to my left and, uh, and Matthew Rutter uh, as well in the early 2000s. Uh, so this was a while ago, and this is back in the sort of the Olympus 140 era of scopes, uh, if memory serves me correctly. It turns out that most of the dysplasia that's present, uh, we discovered around this time, really is visible. Uh, and it's not really coming from those non-targeted biopsies uh, that, uh, that so annoy us on a regular basis. Uh, and that's really important because it gives us that opportunity to intervene with selected removal of that lesion as opposed to removal of the entire colon, uh, which is something like bringing uh, a tactical nuclear weapon to a knife fight. So the purpose of surveillance colonoscopy and IBD is, as it is in sporadic colorectal cancer prevention, to clear the colon. So that's what we're doing. We're identifying and removing all available dysplasia that we can see. And by the way, David, thank you for that slide before. I believe that was yours I lifted. Uh, endoscopists should spend their time carefully inspecting the mucosa, not focusing their time on the passage uh, of biopsy forceps in both directions and the removal of the tissue. And polypectomy, because of some preliminary data that came out around 2000, really mostly in, uh, starting in 1999, demonstrated really a, a fair amount of efficacy, albeit in case series, uh, and it became part of AGA, ACG, and British Society guidelines by the time those guidelines were updated around 2010. So before we had high def scopes even, there was, there was appreciable probability of finding cancer when a DOM, really outdated term and we won't use it or even define it here, or a polyp was present. Uh, and it used to be if you'd perform immediate colectomy, you had in the neighborhood between 30 and 50% rate of a synchronous cancer when all you found was dysplasia in a mass. 
Uh, however, with some of these early studies beginning in 99 with Ruben and Angered, follow up to the Angered uh, study in 2004 by Odds and colleagues, uh, there was really very successful and very little follow-up cancer that was subsequently found. And that's really what led to the inclusion in those guidelines and really to a change in therapy or endoscopic therapy for all of us as endoscopists uh, and to Phil having more time with his kids. So these smaller lesions uh, that we can find, even with naked eye in a pre-chromo age, were really ripe just for polypectomy alone. And we could get in there, we could, uh, we could remove these with simple endoscopic polypectomies, snare techniques, no troubles, no problems, and really excellent long-term for the patient. And we found out, and this was some of our work, and it was done at a number of other places as well. Uh, this was from our Mount Sinai group. And it turned out that this raised dysplasia really had a very different history uh, and prognosis than the flat or really unseen dysplasia that was found on non-targeted or random biopsies. Really very, very little risk, as you can see in the upper part of that curve, years after polypectomy. Uh, there were a number of studies done to follow up on those early ones, and by 2014, there were enough that a systematic review, uh, mistitled a meta-analysis, was done. Uh, they found 10 articles uh, with 425 that they had started with. Cancer progression was identified in five of those 10 studies. And there were two cases of cancer progression in patients in whom complete polypectomy had not been done. So if anything, this group is overestimating, or this meta-analysis systematic review was really overestimating the risk of cancer moving forward because some patients were included who had had incomplete polypectomies, and some, in some cases just biopsy and subsequent follow-up, which is hard to imagine, but it occurred in the VIETH and, and a couple of other studies that were there. And the actuarial rate that was present was 5.3 cancers per 1,000 patient years of follow-up. Very, very low. The scenic recommendations came along, and as you'll see really in recommendations five and six, which I've truncated here, just the concept that all dysplasia should be removed and colectomy if there's incomplete removal of dysplasia, sort of that strategy that, uh, that I mentioned coming, coming up with. And this whole business of chromoendoscopy is great, but really all you're finding are these very small lesions here. And you can see that bilober lesion uh, that I was able to remove in piecemeal polypectomy for all that it's worth. Probably not the greatest technique, but this, uh, this case was done back in 2012, so now, uh, you know, now seven years ago. Um, but very, very easy, uh, easily done. And we weren't missing all that much. And chromo, I don't think, with our modern technology, adds all that much, but that's a different discussion for a different day. Uh, and so there, there are some studies that have demonstrated that size matters, and the CHOI study, which came out recently, demonstrated that polyps bigger than a centimeter do worse than patients whose polyps are a centimeter or less. But it turns out that not only does size matter, shape matters, okay? And it depends if we're talking about polypoid dysplasia or non-polypoid dysplasia, because as our, you know, our real scope jockeys will tell us, uh, it, it, it really depends. The technique varies based on what you find. Uh, and so what we're talking about mostly here in polypoid dysplasia, I don't think anyone would doubt that this patient with a two centimeter polyp should just have a polypectomy. It's quick, it's easy, you do subsequent surveillance, very little will happen to them. 
In these flatter or non-polypoid lesions, that's where it might get a little bit dicey. And I think where ultimately in our discussion session, uh, Phil and I will find, and, and all the panelists here will find some element of agreement. Uh, so shape matters because that really dictates, uh, dictates technique. And so all sorts of things have been done in addition to the usual snare polypectomies that you can do. Uh, and we've even moved on to the presence of uh, ESD uh, for use in these non-polypoid superficial neoplasms in IBD. Uh, the first of these was a combined Italian and Japanese study uh, that had uh, nine patients and 10 neoplasms. Uh, median size of these lesions was 3.3, and it was curative in seven cases. And in those other three cases, yeah, they went on to colectomy. Uh, and then they had follow-up of these other patients, nothing happened. Uh, and they just continued in surveillance. And so these for your flat and difficult lesions can be done. Uh, and here you can see some, uh, some, some photographs. I don't have the cool video. Uh, and uh, this was lifted uh, right out of uh, uh, the paper from GI endoscopy this year. Uh, and you can see that they identify the lesion, in this case through chromo. They map it out. They do their submucosal dissection. They remove this, uh, the specimen on block. They biopsy around it, and they determine if they've uh, been successful or not. And there have been three, uh, three such studies, 70% curative, very, very little uh, metachronous lesions that were found up at a rate of 5.6 per 100 years of follow-up, uh, albeit limited follow-up of only 27 months. So finally, I want to close in the few seconds I've got left here. The reality is our patients don't want colectomy for polyps. They don't want colectomy unless they really need it. Uh, and in fact, Corey, uh, Corey Siegel did a really nice study back when he was a GI fellow, uh, or rather an advanced IBD fellow in Boston, uh, and he found out that the rate at which patients would agree to a colectomy, the median rate, was 73%, which means that 70, there had to be a 73% presence of cancer, or 73% likelihood of the presence of cancer before half of the patients in this survey study would agree to a colectomy, uh, which is pretty striking. So patients don't really want the colectomy. Uh, we have the techniques now that can avert the colectomy safely, uh, and uh, I don't think there's any question. In a polypoid dysplastic lesion, we would all just do a polypectomy, not even involve the surgeon. Uh, with one of these flatter lesions, we might involve the surgeons, we might involve uh, our advanced endoscopy colleagues, uh, and we would just kind of have to wait and see. And this is the strategy. If it's small and discreet, it comes out. Small is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, if it's amenable to a polypectomy, just do it. Uh, if there's carcinoma present, uh, if there's flat dysplasia surrounding, then they can get their colectomy. If it's not amenable to a polypectomy, the same. That's all I got. Thanks. All right, let me tell you the real story now, okay? A little bit of a more critical eye to this. Slides going? Yeah. All right, so it's decision time. My colleague to my left wants to just do an EMR on watch. I want to do surgery. I want to do surgery, and it's not because I'm a surgeon, but I think it's better for the patient. Now, why surgery? Let's first discuss why surgery. Well, particularly with minimally invasive ileal pouch surgery, the feasibility of this technique is very, very well described. There's excellent safety of the iliopouch surgery, and then, although the quality of life after iliopouch surgery is not perfect, it's certainly acceptable. And there's actually some data out there 
to show that the quality of life of patients who've had surgery is actually indistinguishable from the health-related quality of life of the normal healthy population. So although, granted, we know that it's not exactly perfect, there is some data to suggest that it's not as bad, potentially, as everyone in this room might think it might be, okay? The other reason why you do surgery is that about 15, 10 to 15% of all deaths in ulcerative, can ulcerative colitis are due to cancer. This is a young patient. They have their whole life ahead of them. So the question then comes up, what's the incidence of colorectal cancer if you want to compare it after ileal pouch surgery? It's essentially zero. I want you to remember that number as we go through some of this data. Incidence of colorectal cancer after ileal pouch surgery is essentially zero. So the question is then, why EMR and watch? So let's really look into this. The very interestingly, my opponent eliminated and did not comment on statement seven. You can look at the statement consensus uh, uh, guidelines. And what happened is statement seven says as follows, which really is appropriate to this particular case. After complete re removal of endoscopically resectable polypoid dysplastic lesions, surveillance colonoscopy is recommended rather than colectomy. Sounds pretty good. Okay, panelist agreement was 100%. But start looking into this a little bit. One surgeon was on the panel, okay, one surgeon. And it's very interesting, if you actually read a little bit more interesting into the, into the search, actually, Dr. Ullman was actually on that, on, on that statement. The first vote, he was only there for, because it was a consensus panel, the first, he was only there for the first vote, and scheduling conflicts prevented subsequent participation. Where is the surgical input into this decision? What's very also interesting is that they also agreed that the quality of evidence wasn't low, sort of okay, it was very low. No studies were comparing surveillance to surgery, zero, okay? And so this thing was basically endorsed by everyone. There's a 100% panel agreement based on data showing, quote, acceptably low rates of carcinoma with this practice. What's acceptably low? Well, this is some of the data that actually that, that, that Tom showed. This is the, the, the meta-analysis that was done. And yes, if you look at the bottom of this slide, you can see that the incidence of, of progression to colorectal cancer is very low but it's not zero. So this is the summary of it, a meta-analysis I've shown before of 10 studies, 376 patients. Look at the medium length of follow-up. Wow, four and a half years. I did mention that the patient in this study was, in this scenario was young, okay? Outcomes, nine cancers. Now that doesn't sound like a lot, but that's 2.3% of, of the cohort. Okay, that doesn't sound that low, but guess what? If you're one of the nine cancers, that's 100% for you. Okay. Number of prospective studies that have been done on this, zero. Number of long-term studies that have been done on this, zero. Did I mention that the incidence of colorectal cancer after IPA was zero? And the incidence of colorectal cancer on the right with active surveillance is clearly greater than zero, at least based on that data, maybe two to three percent. Okay, doesn't sound like it's that much, but let's see what happens. So the question then comes up, is there any other data? This is, that was, that was um, uh, in 2015. Uh, 2014, uh, 15, yes, exactly. Then there was a subsequent study. This was from the St. Mark's group. This is one of the largest, robust surveillance cohorts prospectively followed the, uh, in the world, okay? And what they did is they looked at the incidence of uh, probability of uh, developing high-grade dysplasia or colorectal cancer, okay, in patients with low-grade dysplasia. If you look in the graph on the right, you can see, all right, it's there. And if you look at the, at the y-axis, it's 0 0.7, 0 0.8%. Okay, about 70 to 80% of the patients actually did not develop it. So about a quarter of the patients developed. But then what they did very smartly is they went back and they looked at the size of the, of the initial polyp that was there. 
Now you start seeing interesting things. Look at the incidence of, of uh, cancer developing in the patients with large, defined as greater than a centimeter. I did mention in this that this is a young patient with a two centimeter, two centimeter polyp. If you look at the incidence of the probabil probability of remaining cancer free, look at that. Now it's not actually 0.8 anymore, it's about 0.5, okay? And look at the medium length of follow-up. Again, this is only after four years again. So some of the factors that they looked at, as they, they found associated with progression with the macroscopic shape of the lesion, which was discussed already, largest lesion size, I'm not gonna go through all of this, and in particularly the exposure of chromoendoscopy. So that was actually being used, or at least a, a potential factor of reducing the incidence. All right, so that sounds really good. But what's very interesting is that if you take their data, they did a very smart thing. They actually made a calculator. And all of you guys can do this, this is the website, okay? I know the font's a little small, but what they did is they took those seven uh, factors that I mentioned to you, lesion size, okay? Whether or not there was chromo available, whether or not it was polypoid, et cetera, and you plug it in. And if you plug in the data for this particular case, okay, if you look at the blue line, you're in, that, that's the incidence of developing either cancer or high-grade dysplasia over time. So just to read the first line, your, can't, your risk of developing that after one year is 2.6%. Okay, but look at the last line. Your risk to develop that after 10 years is 11.6%, okay? Young patient I did mention, right? Okay. Did I mention again that the incidence of colorectal cancer was zero after ileal pouch? The incidence of active surveillance is maybe not zero? A little concerning? So then the question comes up, is there any really good long-term data? And you know, there is sort of a long-term data, and the long-term data we have comes from our experience with ileorectal anastomosis. Just to go back what that is, these are patients before ileal pouch surgery that had their whole colons removed, and many of them actually had it removed, or some of them rather, had it removed for dysplasia. We don't know much about the details of the dysplasia, we can argue about that, but some had it done for dysplasia. These are, this has been done over literally 40 years. This is a study that was actually looking at the incidence of developing dysplasia in the rectum. Remember, this is just the rectum left. This is not just removing the small little polyp that has dysplasia, okay? If you look at the incidence, okay, look at that black line in the middle. That's dysplasia at colectomy showing the incidence, the cumulative incidence of developing uh, neoplasia in the rectum, okay, over time. Look at the median length of follow-up now, getting a little nervous. Now, this is only 10 years. I did mention this as a young patient, didn't I? I will agree that surgery is not always indicated in this scenario. Older patients where the incidence potentially of sporadic adenomas are there, obviously they also have higher surgical morbidity. I did mention this as a young patient whose surgical morbidity after pouch surgery would not be too bad. An adenoma out of a colitis field, they have left-sided disease and a right-sided polyp. I don't think you need to worry too much about that. Obviously patients, as, as Tom said, are the ones that are gonna decide this. If they're willing to accept the risks of waiting, which I wouldn't as a patient, but if they want to, they're okay. Proctitis alone with a polyp in the rectum is probably itself not concerning. And obviously if patients are poor risk, you would not do this. So how do you balance all of this? I think surgery is the thing that helps you out. And I think we all, at least in my mind, I think surgery is important to do here. If you look at EMR and surveillance, okay, the risk of EMR, which are not, not uh, major, but they're there, the need for multiple colonoscopies. And as I mentioned before, the cancer risk is not uncommon. You compare that to surgery, where there are no medications, good quality of life, and the cancer risk is very rare. And you know, just looking at this globally, it's interesting how things have changed. And if you look at it from a bird's eye view, 40 years ago, 
the forced colonoscopes, we talked about this yesterday, there used to be this concept of a prophylactic colectomy in patients with colitis because they were worried about getting cancer. Along comes the colonoscope, and we can say, all right, well, maybe we're looking for just dysplasia on random biopsies. So now not everyone needed a colectomy. Now, with the scenic guidelines, almost no one's going to get a colectomy. And you're basing this on your ability, or at least our ability, to treat these patients like we do in the general population. We know that the pathophys or the pathobiology of these, of these uh, tumors is much different than a patient who has sporadic colorectal cancer. And yet we're all willing to assume that colonoscopic surveillance is going to end up being just as effective in these patients. I think that's pushing the envelope. Obviously, data as we go, for, go forward will answer it in more detail. But I'm, I give a word of caution in terms of associating or using the scenic guidelines for what they are. And I'm going to leave you one final slide. The incidence of colorectal cancer in this patient after going iliopouch anelastomosis is the chance of ever seeing this. Thank you. I've been working out. Does that mean Tom won? <laughs> so we have uh, this uh, discussion stimulated a lot of um, online questions. So we're going to start to go through some of these, uh, if you don't mind, uh, gentlemen. So one um, pointed question is, is there less IBD-related dysplasia with the introduction of biologic therapy, less inflammation, less cancer? Great question. Great question. I don't think we really have the answer to it yet. I think I think it's suspected that uh, you know, as the, there there has certainly been a decrease over time, but the specific impact uh, of anti-TNF uh, and other biologic therapy hasn't really been able to be uh, assessed yet, and we may not ever have the answer to that. But I, I believe that decreasing inflammation over time is probably what's driving down the rates of cancer and colitis. David, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Surprisingly, we don't have a lot of data, but there was an abstract that I haven't seen published looking at claims data with adalimumab exposure, and there was a reduced risk of cancer, but it was um, there were not very many cases, as is usually the situation, so it's often underpowered to make the assessment. Uh, On the flip side, there isn't an increased risk, which we need to always mention. Yeah, and certainly this um, concept has biologic plausibility that it's the inflammation and um, cell damage uh, recovery damage cycle that uh, stimulates the uh, progression to neoplasia. And we have a question from the audience here on the uh, audience left. Yeah, Willem Beelman from Amsterdam. Um, Yeah, let's say the decrease in cancer uh, in the biological area is uh, is suggested by uh, the fact that we'll have a complete mucosal healing, but that's not always the case. So mostly there's still some inflammation and then surveillance is very difficult. Uh, If you still have inflammation, you cannot survey the colon very well. And particularly in these patients who have long-standing ulcerative colitis and maybe some other risk factors like PSC are at high risk of developing uh, cancer. And we see in our unit and also some other European units that there's a shift uh, from doing colectomy for, let's say, inflammatory reasons, refractory uh, disease, towards cancer. So there's something going on in a subset of patients with IBD. What, 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 how do you think about that? Tom? Uh, you know, it, it, we, we haven't gotten our arms around this whole business of whether the incidence is rising or falling. You know, it's always... You know, what you're talking about, uh, the, the relative contribution of cancer and dysplasia relative to inflammation, uh, if overall surgical rates are going down, then yeah, then, you know, 
the relative uh, incidence of, of needing surgery for inflammation uh, overall is going to be the, the big driver there, even if cancer stays the same. Uh, I, I don't know what the answer to this is. I just know it's too early to tell, right? The biologics have only been around uh, for 20 years now at this point in time. That's a good amount of time, but it's not enough for us to get our arms around it uh, in terms of real data yet. Uh, you know, the, all of these associations are there. I'm always reminded of, uh, of, of the ecologic fallacy, uh, which demonstrated that the rise of VCRs uh, in the 1970s and the 1980s was very tightly associated with the rise in HIV, but one's got nothing to do with the other. I just don't know what's real and what's not real here. But, but do you think it would be a take-home message for all the gastroenterologists here that surveillance is unreliable if you have ongoing inflammation? Um, in the presence of lots of active inflammation, surveillance is a tougher uh, is a tougher proposition than if there if there isn't inflammation. But unfortunately, you know, it'd be great, but we can't always treat uh, to full mucosal healing. It's our goal of therapy, but it's not uh, often our reality. But it is true that if the patient has ongoing inflammation or poor prep or pseudopolyposis. We have to acknowledge the limitations of our existing technology. There is a paper that just came out in GUT that looked at subsequent active surveillance after neoplasia was removed. So the whole question here of whether or not it's safe to follow patients after we remove distinct lesions. And in this uh, assessment, the findings were that uh, if you had two negative subsequent exams at short intervals, those patients had uh, been deemed to be cleared for ongoing follow-up because of a very low subsequent risk. But the point you're bringing up about whether you can see adequately is really key. I agree completely with that point, uh, and I think all of us should note that. Uh, you have to be able to do surveillance appropriately if you're going to take this approach. Maybe a last question. Um, what do anyone has an idea what the, let's say, the biolog bio biology is of, a, let's say, a new onset cancer when the patient is under vedolizumab or NTTNF or whatever? And so it's our impression that if there's neoplasia, that it has a different growth pattern if the patient is under a biological. It's an interesting hypothesis. I'm not aware of um, a way to tie that together. I'll just say that uh, historically, by the time people got to biological therapies, there was a lot of water under the bridge with active inflammation. So this may have been something that was predestined rather than actually from the therapy itself. What if the situation was very similar, except there was high-grade dysplasia in the, in the lesion? So it was a visible lesion. You completely removed it endoscopically, but your biopsy came back showing high-grade dysplasia. Would that change your management? Yeah, so I mean, that's the, it's, it's really a great question and one that hasn't been uh, addressed in particular. But, uh, you know, among, among the earlier studies demonstrating uh, the relative utility of endoscopic removal of these lesions, it didn't matter low-grade dysplasia or high-grade dysplasia. What really seems to matter, as it does in sporadic colorectal cancer, is the adequacy of the polypectomy. Uh, you know, certainly I'd be a little more, uh, I'd be a little more cautious in a patient in whom it was high-grade dysplasia and maybe do that first follow-up examination in two months and not three. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, really it, it's sort of the same thing. So can both of you comment on the approach to surveying a cuff 
um, whether or not these patients should have mucosectomy. Um, what's the approach when you're doing colectomy for neoplasia? I'll take it. Um, these patients are still at risk for, for dysplasia in the cuff, and particularly the ones that had pre-op, uh, sorry, pre-op uh, indications for surgery, either dysplasia or cancer. The incidence, though, is low, okay? And so these patients are generally recommended to have biopsies every six months to a year. At some point, if you don't get anything, you can increase it. Certainly, if you see uh, dysplasia in the cuff, many of those cases will actually go away. So you don't actually have to operate on them right away. You can watch them carefully. Maybe if they have very high-grade dysplasia, you'd watch them a little more closely. But it's not itself an absolute indication for, you know, pouch removal or pouch revision, as an example. Um, yeah, I, I, I look a little less frequently than every six months uh, afterwards, uh, generally every, uh, every one to two years, uh, leaning uh, more closely toward two years these days. Uh, but you can't, you, you can't give up on surveillance on these patients if there's a rectal cuff there. Uh, this is a field uh, effect that, uh, that, that's been demonstrated over and over again, and it, it's important to continue to look, even if the yield is, uh, as, uh, uh, as was pointed out, maybe eight times uh, the risk is close to zero, but not quite zero. How about if the patient has PSC, Tom? Can you operate on this patient? Uh, if this patient had PSC and had dysplasia, I'd probably operate on it. But, but again, I, it, you know, we, we should circle the square here for everybody or whatever the right metaphor is. Um, I, I, I'm hoping that you'd, you'd agree that for a very simple polypoid lesion, uh, that polypectomy, uh, which, which I think has become the standard of care, is adequate. It is riskier, certainly, in our younger patients with more time uh, to, to live, uh, but, you know, but I, 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 think mo I think most gastroenterologists now in, 20, in 2018, soon 2019, feel comfortable doing that. I think it's these flat lesions where gastroenterologists can get into trouble and where I think the Choi group got in trouble uh, and where in some of those other cases there was trouble. Again, I, you have to have an honest discussion with your patient, but don't just... Um, you have, they have to know that this is cancer. This will kill them if they develop it. Don't enable them and say the incidence is 2%. They hear that, okay, fine, but you have to realize, you have to tell them, you know, the incidence is 2%, but, you know, this can kill you. And they have to make a decision for themselves what they have to do at that point. That I agree with. I mean, obviously the patient's going to be the ultimate decider what to do, but I would not just say your incidence is very low, I would not have a colectomy. I think that's a mistake. Phil, can you comment on how you communicate about the um, quality of life and the function of a J-pouch? Because often the patients who we do recommend for colectomy after neoplasia are the people who are in remission, and we know that that's different than the medically resistant patients. Yeah, I don't want to get into that, but clearly there's no question that the, the, the uh, expectations of these patients are, um, you know, because they're not coming from six to eight bowel movements a day with active disease and urgency. So their quality of life that they have in general after ilipouch surgery is not as great as the typical medically refractory UC patient, and that's something you've got to factor and that's obviously what patients factor in when they end up making their ultimate decision because generally they're otherwise asymptomatic. And it's very analogous to the FAP patient who's basically asymptomatic and then requires the J-pouch. We have a lot of great questions. Um, I encourage the people who didn't get their questions answered, please come up at the end and hopefully some of our speakers will be available. And I'd like to give uh, this tag team a round of applause for their participation as well.